All right, let's get into part two of a picture-perfect Christmas, a picture-perfect Christmas. Let me just kind of set up the premise of this series for you, if you, if you missed last Sunday. Um, the, the, the premise of the series is that a lot of times we have a picture-perfect image of Christmas in our mind. Like we have this, we have this image of Christmas in our mind that is, is kind of like the perfect situation. Right? I have a picture-perfect Christmas in my mind. It involves, you know, the food being perfect. Everybody's dressed perfectly. Everybody's perfectly cordial and nice to one another. Everyone is perfectly mannerly. Nobody is talking about politics at the dinner table. Everybody's getting along really well. Um, you know, there's a nice gift. Uh, last week I said Harley Davidson. I'm just throwing hints out there uh, for me with a bow um, in the living room. Um, And, you know, so so I've got this picture-perfect image of Christmas in my mind, but I don't know about you. This is just my reality. Every year, my picture of Christmas does not align with my experience of Christmas. Anybody else have that situation where, you know, you've got this image in your mind and you're trying to get to this picture-perfect, but it turns out that, you know, never is everything perfect. The circumstances and the situations in our life are just never perfect. And what we find... Uh, and, and, um, and social scientists have found this, that, that the Christmas season can actually be a season of a higher levels of anxiety, stress, pressure, financial uncertainty. Like, you know, we sing the songs about everything being merry and bright, but a lot of times this season is a really hard season for people. We start to think about people that we've lost. We start to, to, to sort of reminisce even some of, some of us on our own childhood, either, either a childhood that wasn't great or maybe a childhood that we sort of romanticized and, and we think it was greater than our present. We, we a lot of times have this sort of this picture in our mind and then, and then we end up being stressed out and depressed and anxious and worried during the Christmas season because there's all of these expectations that we've built in and they're not being met. And so the premise of this series is maybe the, maybe the picture we have in our mind, the perfect picture of Christmas, is not actually the perfect picture of Christmas. Maybe, maybe our picture perfect Christmas is not a perfect picture of Christmas. Maybe we need to change our picture, the picture in our mind of what Christmas is all about. And so what we're doing in this series is we're going back to the book of Matthew, uh, the gospel of Matthew, and we're looking at what God says is the picture of Christmas. Last week I told you I started in Matthew 1 chapter 1 and in the very first chapter of the very first gospel, the very first book in the New Testament that's describing the the, the Christmas story, we find these wildly imperfect situations. We find people in these wildly imperfect relationships. People who are just wildly imperfect. And when I say wildly imperfect... I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, go back and watch last week's sermon. We, we studied a woman named Tamar, and the situation in her life was so messed up. I'm going to keep it PG-13 today, like I did last Sunday, okay? But I mean, there's sex and violence and, and betrayal and, and, you know, suspicion and subterfuge and, and all this kind of crazy stuff going on in this woman's life. And God says, yeah, I'm going to use you in my perfect picture of Christmas. 
I'm going to include you in the genealogy of Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to include you as part of what I want you to know as the, my perfect picture of Christmas. So, so we're just spending some time in that rhythm. And we're going to continue in that rhythm today. And we're going to explore the life of the second woman that was listed in the genealogy. The first one was Tamar. The second woman was a woman named Rahab. So buckle your seats again, because uh, the situation and the circumstances of Rahab's life were, let's just say, less than perfect. All right? So let me read you uh, from um, the the book of Joshua. Um, The story actually, the, 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 the context of the story is that the Israelites are about to go into Jericho, and they're about to take over Jericho, right? They're going to they're gonna take over the city, all right? So it starts here. It says, Then Joshua, the leader of the Israelites at that time, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. We're already needing to pronounce things the right way for this. Um, anyway, two spies from this town, badly named town, and he says to them, Go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. All right, that kind of just sets us up for what's getting ready to happen. But today, for the next few moments, I want to preach on the subject I'm calling When God Flips Your Script. When God flips your script. Let's take a moment. Let's still our hearts. Let's pray. And then we're going to dive into the story. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that nothing is impossible with you. Thank you that you are a God of redemption. Thank you that you're a God of restoration. Thank you that you are a God of hope. Thank you that you are a God of transformation. And thank you, God, that you invite wildly imperfect people into your story. Because when we see them, we see us. And we know that you want to invite us into the very same story into which you invited these other people from the scripture uh, whose lives are perhaps even less perfect than ours. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, does, anybody, does anybody remember uh, a person named Susan Boyle? Does anybody remember the name of that? Everybody remembers Susan Boyle? Susan Boyle, for those who don't know, was this, um, she was, a, she was a, a contestant on a reality talent show called Britain's Got Talent. And the thing is, she was like the least likely person to ever be on that show. The show was mainly, you know, uh, featuring young pop stars who were trying to make it big in the music industry. And, and that just wasn't her. Um, Susan Boyle, when she came onto the stage for her, her audition... Um, first of all, she was 47 years old, which is a little bit out of the demographic of, you know, the teenage pop star that they were normally looking for. Um, Susan had had a, a really difficult life, a difficult experience. Her, her father uh, worked in the mines. Her mother was a secretary. She was the youngest of nine children in her family. Uh, she was, was diagnosed at a very young age with a, with a learning disability. Um, they believed at that time that, sh- that uh, 
that she had been born with an oxygen deprivation and which, and which affected her mind. I think later they figured out that it was Asperger's syndrome. But either way, she was, uh, she was this young, young woman who just really was kind of the runt of the litter. She was always, always bullied, always pushed around, uh, just had a you know, difficult time making it through life. And yet she had this picture in her mind, this picture in her mind of, of becoming a professional singer. And she actually was, you know, talented. People noticed that she was talented even as a little girl. Um, but, you know, she just wasn't quite the image of the professional singer that you would expect. She, um, she would go and sing at, like, at her church. She would, she would be invited to the choir. Let's just say the Christmas Eve choir. She, she, would, be on, she would be in that group. Um, she, uh, she would go to karaoke bars and sing. You know, that this was her way of actually getting out there to... To, to, to sing. She would sing in pubs. She would sing at birthday parties, you know, and she was trying to make it as a professional singer, and, and everybody around her was basically like, nah, you know, that, like, that's not going to happen, you know, and she, she worked. She had a job, but she would end up spending all of her money making CDs and, like, demo tapes to send off to the record companies who were like, nah, you know, no, nah, you know, that's just not going to happen, right? Um, her mother died in, in 2007, and it was a real crushing event for her because they were very, very close. And, and, um, and so for about a year, Susan Boyle withdrew from music. She didn't sing. She didn't, she didn't pursue music at all. And then uh, in 2008, um, she submitted her application to be on Britain's Got Talent. And if you watch, if you go on YouTube and watch this moment, this audition, it's just super awkward. It's just like super awkward. She comes out I don't want to describe her too harshly, you know, but, but you got you to gotta see it yourself. But she just is not, she's not the right fit. She doesn't fit the bill for this show, right? You got all these slick judges in front, you know, you got this crowd. And she comes out and she's frumpy and her dress is frumpy and, you know, her hair is like sticking out everywhere. She just doesn't look like, you know, and every, you watch the video and everybody in the crowd is like looking at her like, like, is this a joke? Like, seriously? They're all looking at her this way, and she's standing there, and she's in this moment of her life where those three judges in front of her could flip the script of her life so fast, but it just seems so totally unlikely. When we meet Rahab, that's her. When we meet Rahab, this is the least likely person to end up in the in the, in the story of Christmas. She's just not that person, right? When we meet her, first of all, she's a Canaanite, meaning she's like the sworn enemy of the Israelites. So God is using the Israelites to, to fulfill his purpose in, in the earth, right? She's a Canaanite. She's not one of them. They're, they're sworn enemies. The Israelites and the Canaanites would fight hundreds of wars. There would be a lot of bloodshed between these two groups. And she's one of them. She's not on the, the side of the Israelites. The second thing that we learn about her is that she lives, her house is actually built into the wall of Jericho. Like, her home is built into the wall. Do you, do you remember, did anybody remember that song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho? You ever get that song in Sunday school? Remember how that song ends? And the walls come tumbling down, right? Her house is literally built into the walls of Jericho. We learned that in the story. So she's a Canaanite. She's in a pretty precarious situation for what's about to happen. And the third thing, and the kind of the most glaringly obvious thing, which the scripture goes out of its way to keep telling us is, she's a prostitute. This is a woman who sells her body for sex. 
And apparently, when you read the story, what, what it appears is that she's not just like having a bad week and going and doing it. Like, this is her career. Her house, her, she, they, she's also called an innkeeper. So like her entire house is dedicated to prostitution. So you, you've got this person who is unlikely on every level to be, in, to be in, in, in incorporated into the Christmas story. But what I believe God is trying to tell us as we, are, as we are exploring the Christmas story, as we're trying to get our picture of the Christmas story out of our mind and, and get God's picture of the Christmas story into our mind, I think one of the things he's saying to us is that in, in his picture of Christmas, your, the failures of your past don't dictate the outcome of your future. I think that's what he's saying when he starts the story by saying they met a prostitute named Rahab. I think what he's saying is if you've got a picture in your mind of the perfect situation and the perfect people and the perfect circumstances and that's your picture of Christmas, you've got a bad picture of Christmas. This is why you're stressed out and anxious because you're trying to live up to a picture that isn't reality. You're trying to airbrush your life, right? You're trying to Instagram filter your life to fit in with a picture-perfect image of what you want it to be. And what God is saying is, I'm going to give you something way more perfect than that. I'm going to give you not a perfect person, not, not a perfect situation, not a perfect circumstance, not, not perfect uh, uh, people and relationships. I'm going to give you a perfect God who's going to break into the wildly imperfect situation and circumstances of your life and bring redemption and restoration and healing into your messed up life. That's the picture of Christmas. We, we sort of put, dro- drilled down on this last, last um, week, but like it's the story of Christmas really blows your mind when you think about it, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a picture of light, lightness and joy and laughter. It's a picture of a perfect righteous, redeeming God coming into a world of brokenness and despair and hurt and heartache and shame and guilt and condemnation and fear. That's, that's the picture of Christmas. And God is saying, look, this is the picture that I want you to have. If your past failures dictated your future outcome, if that was the truth, I would not be up here preaching to you today. You would not be out there listening today. Abraham would not be in the Bible. Isaac would not be in the Bible. Jacob would not be in the Bible. Moses would not be in the Bible. David would not be in the Bible. Peter would not be in the Bible. Paul, there would be nobody in the Bible, right? There would be, the Bible would be, then God created the heavens and the earth, and basically that would be the end of the story, right? Because because what God is saying in this story, and he's saying to us through this story, is that your past failures do not dictate your future outcomes. This is just, this piece is for somebody today that's here and that really genuinely is struggling during this season with guilt and condemnation and shame. This is for you. This is for you because God wants you to know that, yes, I see that, I know that, I understand that, I completely get that, but I can transform that into something beautiful. I can take what, you know, what, what your, your past was and I can make it a beautiful future. So, that, so that's what's happening. They come in, they meet um, this prostitute, They're going to stay in her house, right? So they're going to stay in her house. A lot of people go, well, why would they go stay in her house? I think because 
you're going to stay in this brothel because like everybody there wants to keep their identity a secret, right? So you're really going to kind of fade into the background. Nobody's making a lot of eye contact at the brothel. Nobody's going like, hey, what's your name? What do you do for a living? How's it going? You know, right? So like it's the kind of place where you can sort of like, you know, you know, whatever, slurk or whatever the word is like, you know, whatever. What's the word? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You can kind of just hang out. Anyway, I can't think of that word. But it's the kind of place where you can just sort of, got, you know, like put on, uh, you know, the disguise and nobody's going to find you. So that's why the spies are there. They're going, all right, nobody's going to see us. But the problem is somebody does recognize them. Somebody figures it out. Some guy, probably, it was either, well, okay, it was either a prostitute or it was somebody, uh, you know, a, a John, somebody trying to get a prostitute. Somebody went, uh-oh, those guys are Israelites. And went and told the king that there were Israelite spies in Jericho. The reason we know this is because the next verse says, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. He said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now, let me just, let me just say, he didn't send this message via text. He didn't send an email going, hey, Rahab, you got some spies in your house. He sent like a group of armed guards to the house to say, hey, we understand that there may be some spies here and we want to we wanna know uh, where they are. And what we would expect is that Rahab would go, oh, yeah, actually there's two guys that look a little bit foreign. They're upstairs on my roof. Can you go get them and take them, right? Because she's a Canaanite. She's on their side. But that's not what she does. The scripture says, but the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, and then she, this is what she tells the guards. She says, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. And I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch them. So she's, she's lying, right? She's, she's, she's deceiving. Uh, but actually, it says, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. This is, this is kind of an interesting point that I just, it's not a whole point here, but, but I love how God uses even the, even the habits and skills that you've developed for your bad behaviors and uses them for something good. Isn't that cool that he does? Like, he, ta- he uses everything, right? This is a woman who's had a little bit of practice hiding men under, you know, stalks of flax on her roof before. Like when the wife comes, hey, Rahab, have you seen my husband? No, I don't know. He was never here, right? And he's up under this. So she's done this before. She's gotten pretty good at deceit. She's gotten pretty good at sneaking around, right? And God says, you know what? Okay, it's not a good trait, but I'm going to use that, okay? So the spies are hiding up on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit. The guards are gone. Uh, set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was, sh- was shut. Guards are gone. Rahab's still in her house. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab goes up on the roof and says to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and I know that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us so that all who live in this country, all of us, all of us Canaanites, we're melting in fear because of you. She says, we, we've heard We've heard a little bit about what God is doing through you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. 
And we heard what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east uh, of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, when we heard about all of this, she says, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. She says, we've heard about some things that your God is doing, and I'm taking notice of this, right? And then she says the line that changes her life, that flips the script of her life forever. She says, for the Lord, your God, is God. The Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. This is a confession of faith. This is a woman who says, yes, I'm a Canaanite. Yes, I'm a prostitute. Yes, I'm in opposition to you, but I've heard about your God and it has, come, it has become clear to me in my heart and mind that the God you serve is the God of the universe, is the almighty God. She makes a confession of faith and what she is saying in this moment, why she's hiding these guys and what she's saying in this moment is, I want to be on the side of that God. Otherwise, I would have told the guards that you were here. I would have brought, but I understand who your God is, and I want to get on your God's side. She wants to change the trajectory of her life. She wants to flip the script on her life, and for her to do that, she needs to speak to the author of her life. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you want to change the end of your story, Connect with its author. If you want the trajectory of your life to change, if you want the ending of your life to be different from the beginning of your life, then you need to speak to the author of your life, the author and creator of your life. Anybody here have a bad chapter or two in their life? Some of you are in a bad chapter right now. You're actually in a bad chapter of your life right this moment, right? And a lot of times when you're in a bad chapter, you feel like you're in a bad book. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, the book started out okay, and then it just kind of went south, right? If you want to change the end of your story, then you need to connect with the author. One of my, one of my wife's uh, favorite movies is an old classic called Pretty Woman. Has anybody ever watched Pretty Woman? I don't know if I can re- recommend Pretty Woman for a lot of reasons. Um, um, but in the story of Pretty Woman... Um, you know, it's, it's, for those of you who don't know, don't, you don't have to watch it. But uh, it's Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. And Julia Roberts plays like this kind of down-on-her-luck Hollywood prostitute. And Richard Gere is this rich business guy, and he hires her um, to, to kind of be an escort for him to go to these social events and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, it's really interesting when you look at the history of this movie because the way, the first draft of the script was very, very different from the movie that, that you've seen. Because in the first draft of the script, it wasn't like a romantic comedy. It was like a, it was like a really dark, depressing, like morality tale. In, in the original version, in the original draft of the script, first of all, it was going to be played by Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer. So it's more like, it's like, kind of like Scarface for romantic, I don't know. It was, it was like, can you imagine? Okay, Richard Gere, and, and the way it ended in the original script is the, the business guy shoves the prostitute, this is how it ended in the original script, you can look it up, shoves, him out, shoves her out of his car, down on the streets, 
throws a wad of cash at her, you know, makes her, kicks her out, and she ends up crying hysterically in the street. That's how the movie ended originally, the first draft of the script. Not surprisingly, nobody wanted to see that movie. Right? It was going to be this, you know, analysis of class relationships in Hollywood, you know. But it was like, no, you know. So, so what the producers did is they went to the authors. And they said, we need, a, we need you to flip the script. We need you to write a different ending to this story. We need you to write a better ending to this story, right? And, and, and the authors of the script said, okay, we'll write a better ending. And, and they wrote the ending where, Richard, where it ends with Richard Gere, like, I think he's standing up in his white limousine or something, right, out of the moonroof. I can't remember exactly. And he's riding in, and she's up on the fire escape, and he's got bouquets of roses, and he climbs the fire escape, and they end up, I don't want to ruin it for you, but they end up kissing, and, you know, and anyway, they fall in love. It's, it's kind of gross, but anyway, it's, that's, it's a better ending than, than the other one, right? Here's the thing. Here, I say all that to say this. If you want the, the, the end of your story to be better, you got to go talk to the author. You got to go to the author and say, hey, the, the script of my life is not exactly turning out the way I want it to. There's some chapters in here that I, I really need to be revised. There's some, there's some parts of my life that I actually need you to redact out. That's the beautiful thing about, about, <laughs> about a writer is that he can actually, he can, he can delete the parts that he already wrote, right? When God says that I forgive you, that, that, your, that though your sins be red as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. You know what he's saying? He's like, I'm rewriting your story. I'm not just rewriting the future of your story. I'm rewriting the past of your story. I'm taking your, your past, the sins of your past, and I'm putting them as far away from me as the east is to the west. I'm rewriting your story. If you want to flip the script of your life, anybody with me this morning? If you want to flip the script of your life, you got to go connect with the author. You need to have an encounter with the author. You need to say, God, I... You're the God of heaven and earth. And I, I want to, the, the way my life, Rahab says, the way my life is going is not the way I want it to go. And I can see where it's headed. And it's headed towards destruction. I want a different ending. I want to meet the author of life. I want to connect with him. And so she says this to them. She, she makes this confession of faith. And then in verse 12, it says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. So I, I covered you. I want you to cover me. Give me a sure sign, she says, that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save all of us from death. Please do this for me, she says. The men say, our lives for your lives. Okay, we've got an agreement. They assured her, if you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So then it says this, she let them down by a rope through the window. You know, she lived in the wall, right? So she let them down a rope so they would be outside of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until the return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us Unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. 
And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside of your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads, will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we'll be released from this oath you made us swear. So, I mean, they got this agreement worked out, okay? Agreed, she replies. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, you might have been wondering what this was doing up here the whole time. Were you? I was hoping you would be, that you would just be so intrigued. Like, what is that red cord doing up there? So when I'm reading this story, I'm curious. Like, what is the deal with the red cord? What's the story with the red cord? Like, you know, I mean, it could, it could have been anything. They could have said, put a potted plant in your window, and then we will know, that, right? I mean, it could have been a blue scarf. It could have been a yellow, I don't know. I don't know. It could have been anything, right? But I kept going back to this question, like, why, why this red cord? Why did they say, tie this red cord and hang it out your window? What, what's the significance of the red cord? So, you know me, like I kind of got obsessed this week and I started drilling down. I started doing this research. I came across a, uh, a paper by a guy named Professor Scott Nagel. He's a professor of biblical and ancient Near Eastern languages and literatures in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilization at the University of Washington. Sounds like a pro to me. I mean, that's pretty good. And what's fascinating is that he studies Near Eastern symbolism. And, and, and symbolism in the Bible. And he sort of came to the same conclusion. He goes, well, you know, what, wh- why would it have to be a red? What's the detail? What's the, what's the emphasis? What's the thing? Why, why does it have to be a red cord? And what he has discovered, and other people have, have uh, affirmed this, is that it's most likely that the red cord was actually, it's something that was already in her possession, right? It was actually a, a sign of her um, of her career. So, so that she would hang a red cord out or put a red cord out at her house and people would go, this is a house of prostitution. I mean, we still have this today. Have you ever heard of like a red light district? A red light district is a district where there's prostitution, right? When you read uh, um, uh, the scarlet letter, right? The color red keep, sort of symbolizes this, um, you know, this sort of like sexual, um, sexual sin. And and so in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it's thought that the, that the red cord would have been the symbol for prostitution. And so that, so that when, when she would have that cord hanging out, it would say to your passerbys, like, hey, this is a place of prostitution. If that's what you're looking for, that's, that's what you can find. And having a red cord in that area would have been extremely expensive. A lot of, it's very hard to dye wool red and dye linen red. Uh, in that day and age. So this had a very strong significance, right? And what I find fascinating about this, and this is what I love about the Bible, is that it's the very symbol of her sin that the, that the spies say, we want you to hang that out as a banner of your redemption. We want that, that's going to be the symbol that we're going to look at. And if we see the red cord hanging from your window, that's going to signal us that's going to signal us that this is the house that needs to be saved. Last note I want you to take is this. 
the symbol of your shame can become the sign of God's salvation. The symbol, the very thing, this is important to get, the very thing that you are most ashamed of, the very thing that you most need to hide from God, the very thing that you need most to hide from your spouse, the very thing that you need most to hide from your family, the very part of your life that you need most for nobody to see is the very thing that you need to put on display to God because when he sees that symbol, he goes, that's the symbol, that's the sign of my salvation. That shows me that I'm coming to you to save you from that. The, the symbol of her sin became the, the insignia, the banner of her salvation. The Professor Nagel wrote this. He said, in the story of Rahab, the author transforms the scarlet cord from an emblem of prostitution to a symbol of hope. My question for you is this. What is the, what is the red cord in your life? What is the red cord in your life that symbolizes for you the brokenness of your life? That symbolizes for you the part of you that you say, this is irredeemable. This is the part that I can't present to anyone. This is the part that I can't present to God because I'll be rejected by God. Because God is saying, actually, no. That's what I want you hanging out your window. That's what I want you to put on display because I'm going to come and I'm going to save you in that. That's actually the symbol of hope and redemption and restoration. The scripture ends, the story ends. The, the Israelites came in you know, just like they said they would. It says they burned up the city. They burned up everything in it. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute. Uh, it's just a little striking to me that they keep calling her by the title. Right? They keep saying like, hey, by the way, we're not, we're not going to airbrush this story. We're not going to say that she's not what she was because that's what she was. But God redeemed her. I just think, and then you read in James and you read in Hebrews, they keep saying it. It's like, okay, guys, give us a break. We got it, right? We know what she did, right? But they just want you to know, like, this is who God can save. Yeah. Uh, spared Rahab, the prostitute, her father's household, and all who belonged to her because she had hid the men, Joshua, and sent the spy on Jericho. And it says she lives in Israel to this day. At the time that this was written. She was a known person in Israel to that day. And of course, we know from the, from the Gospel of Matthew that she was the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. She is a hero in the Christmas story. She is a perfect, she is a, hear this now, Rahab the prostitute is a perfect picture of Christmas. A perfect picture of Christmas. You guys know how the story of Susan Boyle ended, but I'll tell you anyway. She gets up on the stage at uh, Britain's Got Talent. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's cynical. Everybody's making fun of her, like to the point where like you can tell she's embarrassed. She wants to like leave the stage, right? And then they say, okay, go ahead and sing. And she opens her mouth and she sings... Um, from Les Miserables, 
She sings, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed a dream. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not Susan Boyle. When time's gone by, you know that song. When hope was high and life worth living. That song, right? But she does it in this like, it's like, it's like her whole life just comes out of her mouth in that moment. It's like all of the, all of the shame, all of the pain, all of the rejection, all of the sadness, all of the grief from losing her mom, all of the stuff of her life just kind of pours out in that moment. And, and I actually went back, just to be honest, I went back on YouTube this, this, <laughs> this week and I watched it again. I'm not going to say I cried, but I'm going to say I got misty, all right? Because like people leapt to their feet, right? And they just went nuts because this highly unlikely person stepped into their moment and her life was transformed forever. The judges flipped the script of her life. Somebody who just completely did not fit the bill. Actually, after that night, within just a few days of that performance, that video on YouTube had had 100 million views. 100 million views. I don't know how many, I don't know how many hundreds of millions it has now. Six months later, she released the number one best-selling album of the year. Number one, Susan Boyle, singing in karaoke bars, right? Asperger's syndrome, not 47 years old, not looking like a pop star, right? She, she sells, uh, she, she sells, she sells this album. Her debut album, I Dreamed a Dream, became the UK's best-selling debut album of all time. Sometimes, sometimes God wants to say to somebody, I know that you're unlikely. I know that there are things in your life that make you an unlikely candidate for the fulfillment of my purpose. But if you'll give me the unlikely parts of you, if you'll hand those over to me, I will transform those into, into your purpose, into my plan, into the redemptive story that I have for the world. I'll take whatever you got and I will change it and transform it into what I have for you. It's fascinating to me, and I'm going to close, that when the Israelites needed to be saved from Egypt, before Joshua, before all of that, God said, here's, here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you put the blood of a lamb on your doorpost. If you know that story from the book of Exodus. And that will be a symbol to me. That will be a symbol. Put a, a, the scarlet blood of an animal on the doorpost. And that will be a symbol to me to deliver you, to save you. And then, of course, thousands of years later, we have the image of, of Jesus on the cross. And we have the description of that. There's an old hymn that says, I see a crimson stream of blood that flows from Calvary. It reaches the thrones of God and it's washing over me. You see, God is saying, look, I, I want to take the most shameful part of you, the hardest, most difficult, terrifying worst part of you and I want to use it for the purpose that I have for you I want to change your life but I want you to get your perfect picture out of your mind and I want you to receive my perfect picture because my perfect picture is not perfect circumstances it's not perfect people it's not a perfect situation it's a perfect God coming into your imperfect mess and making something beautiful let's pray together Heavenly Father we come to you today 
thankful for your story. Thankful for your picture of Christmas. Thankful for how different it is from our picture of Christmas. Thankful, God, that that in your picture, we don't have to be perfect because you are. God, we ask today that all of us would embrace your picture of Christmas. That we would release and let go our, our picture. And we would embrace the reality that you are a loving, redeeming God who has come to transform us, who has come to save us. And then ultimately you've come to use us to pursue your purpose, to bring in our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers and children, to be like Rahab and bring them into the house of salvation, to experience that that experience with the author of life, and then God, to, to invite others into that experience. God, I pray that each and every one of us this Advent season leading up to Christmas would remove our pictures of Christmas and we would embrace your perfect picture of Christmas, a picture of redemption, a picture of transformation, a picture of hope. Father, for this, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen. I want to invite you as we close today, there are a few ways that you can join us in worship. Uh, one, one of the ways that you can join us in worship is, is through prayer. If you need prayer today, uh, we have uh, prayer team members that are going to be in the side auditorium that they're available to pray with you and they're just going to be there for you. Um, if you want to sign up for baptism, I want to invite you to go onto that QR code you say, man, I want to be a part of God's story. I'm tired of writing my own story. I need to, I need to interact with the author. Uh, I want to invite you to, to go onto that QR code, sign up for our baptism um, for, for next Sunday. If you say today, I want to become a member of One Family Church, I want to go learn what this is about. I want to be attached to the story of a group of people who are pursuing this kind of God. Um, I want to invite you, come out tonight, 5 o'clock, to the Shaw campus. We'll have a great time there. there. Have a great dinner. We'll have a blast, all right? So come on out uh, to that. If you, wanna, if you want to um, partner with us in giving and expanding this mission, expanding this story around the world, uh, you can do that um, through your giving. You can do that on this, on this app, um, and you can partner with us. You can do it online, uh, do a one-time or recurring gift. If you're a guest or a visitor, please don't feel any obligation to do that. This is for our, this is for those of us that call this our church home. We partner with one another. In, in fact, in terms of partnerships, we have a couple of our, um, a couple of our, our, our ministry partners out in the lobby today. Uh, I'm going to invite you to go see them. Crossroads Counseling is out in the lobby today, um, and they are, uh, they do great work. Christian Counseling. In fact, if you need counseling, go talk to them. Um, they'll, they'll hook you up. They're incredible. And then we've got uh, another one of our new ministry partners called The FAM. Uh, the FAM is an organization that I'm particularly excited about. Um, it's, it's, it's addressing housing inequities and housing inequalities in the St. Louis region. Um, and some members of our church, uh, including me, have helped to develop that organization. Um, it's, it's, I'll tell you more about it down the road, but it's a great opportunity. So you can go out, check out our ministry partners out there and, and hang out with them and, and learn a little bit more about those organizations. And finally, I want to invite you uh, to worship with us in song. Our worship team is going to close us out, so I'd invite you to stand with us now. Open your hearts, open your mouths. Let's sing. Let's worship.